Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I have the honor to speak with psychologist Dr. Colleen Long. Dr. Long is a psychologist by trade, but an entrepreneur at heart, owning Boston Psychological Testing Associates and Clarity California Psychological Testing. These practices feature an innovative model for efficient testing and diagnostic clarification within the parameters of insurance. Currently, she is developing the Elevated Practice, a consulting model aimed at helping group practice owners streamline processes. Through leveraging AI and other technologies, Dr. Long is guiding practice owners to own rather than merely run their practices. Today, our conversation focuses on neuropsychological testing, the crucial role of psychological testing in illuminating the healing path. Welcome, Dr. Long. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So today, it's going to be a really important conversation to talk about neuropsychology and what neuropsychologists do and how important testing is in the psychological process. Yeah. So what is a neuropsychologist? So two pieces to that. A psychologist, a licensed psychologist, and that's what I am, can do neuropsychological testing. And then there's a board-certified neuropsychologist that tends to go into the weeds more. So they tend to be either more forensics or more into like the dementia, Parkinson's side of things where they can take a deeper dive into neuropsych testing. The other piece of that is neurologist. And I think that's what we often get confused with. So when people call us for testing, sometimes they have questions that would be better directed at a neurologist. They're wanting to get an MRI or that sort of thing. And so they think we are just kind of running them through a machine and we can do the testing. And our testing takes anywhere from four to six hours to be able to complete. So what maybe also might be helpful for the listener to understand why someone might think about neuropsychological testing. Why would a patient think about it or a clinician? Well, actually both, because oftentimes a clinician refers their client to a neuropsychologist for testing. Yeah. So for a clinician, typically it will start when the clinician has been working with someone for a while and they start to notice some symptoms of maybe ADHD or autism, or they're like, I just can't get a read on this person. You know, it feels like we're here and I need another pair of eyes. So that's often when we'll get our referrals from therapists where they're just like, I really want an x-ray. I want to see what's going on on the inside of this person to inform my treatment. And that's kind of how we position ourselves at Clarity California is that we are the x-ray before the surgery that is therapy, you know? And so you wouldn't go into surgery without an x-ray to see where you're going. So why jump into therapy without testing to understand what you need to focus on? So from the clinician standpoint, I think that's where we come in. From the patient standpoint, we'll often see people that are self-referred because we take insurance and they've just been through a plethora of providers, treatments. They're trying a lot of different things, but don't really know what they need to do. They don't really know what's going on. Sometimes they're just like, my child's unhappy or my child's really having difficulty in school. And so we can sort that out for them. A lot of times you'll see them come from their school. So usually the first place a person will reach out or a parent is through the school system. And fortunately, the catch-22 with that is that 
you can go through all this testing and then the school psychologist can't make a medical diagnosis. So then the kids taking all these tests that, by the way, they can't repeat again for a year and there's no conclusion. So then there's no plan. And so that's where we come in, where we look at what's already been done and we curate a battery looking at what questions we want to answer in there. So you talk about these battery of tests. What are those tests? There's a lot of them. And I also assume that regardless of if you're looking at autism, ADHD, or other things, you might use the same tests, even though there are different diagnoses that you're considering. Yeah. So when we see someone, whether it be a child, teen, or adult, we're looking first at rule outs. So we don't see anybody that's in a forensic capacity, like custody, capacity, competency. We can't test anyone that's actively psychotic. Or someone that's on substances, like smoking a lot of pot every day, of course, you're going to see executive functioning impairment. So we have some pretty strict rule outs. And then based on what the referral question is, and sometimes that comes from the patient themselves, or sometimes that comes from the psychiatrist that's referring them or the therapist, the therapist will usually put on an input form for us. I'm noticing some signs of ADHD, or this person seems to have a lot of social impairment. I'm wondering if this is autism spectrum disorder or social communication pragmatic disorder. So based on those referral questions, we have part neuropsych testing and part psychological testing and then personality testing. So if ADHD or autism, or sometimes it's dementia, Alzheimer's that are being questioned, we have a neuropsych component. And those tests are designed to test those specific things. So if we're looking at something like dementia, Alzheimer's, we're going to be doing a lot of interviews with spouse, uh, parents, partners, people that are able to observe that person, especially if that person doesn't necessarily have insight into their impairment and functioning. If someone has a question of ADHD, always at the core, we're doing a Wexler. So we're doing a WISC for kids, a, a WACE for adults and teens. And can you tell them what that is? Yeah. So that's one of the main IQ tests that we give to look at cognitive functioning, executive functioning. It gives us a good sort of robust look at where someone's strengths are and maybe where they're struggling. And sometimes you can see someone has great nonverbal abilities, you know, their ability to look at a puzzle and understand how these pieces fit into it or look at a sequence of patterns and make logical rules from abstract information is phenomenal, but their verbal abilities are really low. That gives us a lot of information about someone or someone could encode the information when they see it, but when they hear it, they can't. So that gives us a lot of information in terms of recommendations for school and stuff like that. So that's kind of where we start is we always will start with the core cognitive functioning, unless the question is not about ADHD or anything related to their neuropsychological functioning. It's more like I need diagnostic clarification. I don't know if this is depression, anxiety, PTSD. We might get a very short, it's called a KBIT2, and that gives us a good look at the IQ, but it's a much less time-consuming test if that's not the basic thing that we're looking at. And then from there, we do usually the Milan or we'll do a PAI, and that helps give us an idea of their personality. We look at executive functioning, so we'll usually do like a TOBA or a MOXO, and those are the continuous performance tests. So it measures someone's ability to sustain attention, their timeliness in responding, hyperreactivity and impulsivity. And so we get to see that, and we also get to see that in the presence of visual and auditory distractors to see which one's influencing them, as well as measure medication outcomes. So psychiatrists might say, I put them on this. I want to see if their MOXA scores improve over time as a result of being on this medication. 
Earlier, you used the analogy of neuropsych testing being an x-ray before the procedure, right? One question I have is, are there ever errors in reading the x-rays? Yes. So you could take five different psychologists reading the same x-ray, and they would have five different opinions. And I think a lot of that comes from there's different schools of thought about what ADHD is. And there's so many different presentations of that. It was kind of like the guy I listened to earlier that did the autism podcast with you. No one case presents the same. So you see someone that maybe has emotional dysregulation and it's a product of ADHD. And then you see someone else that has no issues with emotional dysregulation, but are inattentive, can't listen to multi-step instructions, very forgetful, and that impacts them in a different way. So it could show up differently in the test. And some psychologists are of the opinion that there's no set of tests that can define ADHD. And then the other, which I'm part of, looks at is there an actual observable impairment in executive functioning? So do you see someone's cognitive functioning up here? And then in all of the areas where they're having to encode and retrieve information, are we seeing that deficit in sustained attention? Okay, so we're talking about getting a report from a neuropsychologist after going through a lot of investigation about how someone's mental functioning brain works, right? So you have a report. But then what do you do with that? So we have a three-step process. The first step is the intake with the patient. And that's just when we get their concerns and their history and that sort of thing. Second step is the testing. And then the third is the feedback. So that's when we go over what was ruled in, what was ruled out. We'll start with their questions. And sometimes we'll say, I know you were concerned about ADHD, but you don't actually have an executive functioning impairment. You do have PTSD and that will look like ADHD sometimes. So I understand why you were questioning that. It will certainly affect our bandwidth and our ability to pay attention and focus on things. It will make us feel like our thoughts are disorganized, but you wouldn't want to use traditional stimulant medication. You would want to do a treatment for PTSD like EMDR, that sort of thing. So where it helps the client is that sometimes the diagnosis that we're giving isn't necessarily groundbreaking to them. They're like, yeah, I I knew I had depression or I knew I had anxiety or PTSD, but what is maintaining their symptoms specifically can be eye-opening. And sometimes what that looks like is this person has a very avoidant personality. They tend to feel like the world is going to reject them, so they will pull themselves away first. They have difficulty self-validating. So then you start to get into the dynamics of where therapy can really intervene to change that patient's symptoms. And the therapist, usually it's like this other piece of the puzzle. So the therapist especially if they've been working with them for a while, has all these pieces of the puzzle and then they get the report and things start to click into place of like, oh, that's why we keep on going around that issue because of this thing that makes sense and it helps them connect the dots. The other thing that I think can be really helpful is it's not just a diagnosis that you're getting when you do testing. A really good psychological testing case, you should walk away with recommendations of your path Like, what should you do now, now that you have this information? And that's what's most overwhelming for patients when they're at feedback. They don't want to jump off. They want to ask more questions like, wait, where do I go and what do I do? And we make sure that in our reports, we have this sort of outline path of all the different areas, self-help tools, types of therapy. Sometimes we'll recommend like GeneSight or GenoMind to help guide medication treatment. So for sleep, 
instead of saying, you should have a better sleep hygiene. Well, what does that look like? You know, sometimes people think that means like, I just get off my phone. Well, no. So why don't you use this vagal nerve stimulator? There's True Vega Gamma Core. So we give them actual product names and we're not affiliated with any of them, but actual tools that help them and help them help themselves. I assume what often happens is in the feedback session, the patient or client has become attached to the neuropsychologist who's helped them through this investigative process. Oftentimes they might say, well, why can't I just continue to see you? You're a psychologist. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes that happens where they're like, this feels good. Let's just keep talking like this. And so I just explained, I don't do that anymore. I used to do therapy a long time ago, but my passion really is for giving people the x-ray into themselves and seeing what they can do. And sometimes people get the idea that it's for someone that maybe has a disability. And yes, we get that section of patients, but we also get people every day that are like, am I okay? Do I have ADHD? These things are happening. My life seems to be going okay, but I wonder about this. And we can answer some of those questions as well. Hmm. You also mentioned a little bit ago that your group accepts insurance. So does someone need to get pre-approved for their insurance to cover it? I've never seen on my end a doc needing to do a referral. Typically, we have to write a pre-auth that says, this patient has tried X, Y, and Z. They've tried all these different medications, or they're now in an IOP program, and they've gone through four different therapists. It's time now to look at their diagnosis and figure out what's actually going on so that we can inform treatment. And at that point, the insurance company is like, yes, please do that because it's saving them time and money. Got it. So there is a step of needing to petition to the insurance to say, please cover this. Yeah. A lot of insurance companies nowadays, because everybody's starting to recognize how important mental health is, don't require a prior authorization. They're like, yes, absolutely. This person hasn't had psychological testing in a couple of years, and we don't need to have any sort of peer review or approval. But there are still some insurance companies that want you to write what's called a PA or a prior auth, where you're saying, use the test I'm doing. This is how long it's going to take me. This is why I think it's needed. And then usually you don't have a problem getting it approved. This question just came to mind. What if an individual doesn't agree with the feedback that you give them? For the most part, I'm used to people being pretty happy when they come out of the sessions and they're like, this is so great. I'm so glad I did this. But there is a small percentage of people that have a very strong idea of what they have and what is going on. And so I am just seen as that step of, I need to go to my psychiatrist because I need stimulant medications. And they said, I have to see you first before they'll prescribe. So a lot of times the psychiatrist will then refer them, but then you've got a patient that is absolutely 100% sure they have ADHD. And so I'll usually say at intake, if I get the sense that that's where this is going, how would you feel if at feedback, we find you don't have ADHD and you'll get a preview of that. You know, usually you get pretty big kickback, but I feel like all of us here that do the feedbacks do a pretty good job of explaining and looking at the test results and showing them visually why it's not there. And for the most part, people walk away knowing it wasn't just a subjective opinion of like, you shall pass, you shall not pass. It's not like that. We're looking at these objective data that tells us you can shift set. You're cognitively flexible. This is not a typical ADHD profile. You only started to question this last year. ADHD is something that you're going to see way back in terms of when you were a child. 
So you do get that pushback and you get people that aren't necessarily happy that they didn't get whatever diagnosis or they did get a diagnosis that they disagree with. And so I'll usually say to them, I'm one psychologist. And for every one psychologist, there's six others out there that will have a different opinion when they do the same set of tests. So it's not like they come to me and that's the end. They can always come to someone else for a second opinion and that sort of thing. And I think that helps to de-escalate the situation if someone feels like my entire livelihood is now riding on this person who says, I don't have ADHD. Yeah. But I think it's also important to highlight that that doesn't happen so often in terms of someone being upset about the outcome. Like most people are grateful to know, okay, this is what's going on. Yeah. And for someone, I mean, this is rare, but for some people, they come to us and they are just the very high functioning. They don't have anything. They have no diagnosis. And so I'll start off with, you have the dreaded diagnosis of no diagnosis. And they're like, okay, well, I guess that's good news. And so for the most part, you have that. But if someone's really having what they feel is an impairment, whether it be at home or with their spouse or at work, and you can't put a finger on it, at least through our testing, that can be really frustrating too. So we'll just empathize with that feeling, but then say, listen, in terms of clinical norms and the data on your peers, you're doing great. <laughs> and you know, you've got some personality traits, but nothing that's disordered at this point. Right. It leads to this larger conversation about the benefit of a diagnosis, right? And feeling validated and feeling seen and feeling there's a plan, a protocol of what to do once you have a diagnosis. Yeah. When you say, if I were to write a report that you're reading that says ADHD in the diagnosis, that relays a ton of information to you without having to have an hour conversation about that, right? And so I think that's where those labels become helpful for people is that it helps with that continuity of care. And it's something before we started recording, another reality of the importance of psych testing has to do with accommodations. Yeah, so there is quite a push, especially I've noticed after COVID, where a lot of people just struggled and fell behind for getting accommodations. And so it is usually around a learning disability. So dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia, and these are dyslexia is the impairment in reading, dyscalculia is impairment in math, and dysgraphia is in written expression. So Insurance companies don't necessarily see that as medically necessary. And so that's kind of what we explain is typically it's one day of testing, but if they want to rule out learning disabilities, it's two days of testing because that alone takes up five hours of time. So we will do that testing. And oftentimes we will find someone, I had a 17-year-old that had dyslexia. I don't know how she got as far as she did in school, but it was so rewarding to be able to pinpoint for her why she's been struggling and she was getting ready to go to college. I mean, I don't know that she would have been successful if not for the accommodations for this and not for remediation. So that's where it can be really rewarding. And then just helping kids and parents understand how their brain works, you know, that they sometimes see things different or learn things differently. Yeah. This brings me to, as we wrap up, this idea of kind of last words for the listener. And I feel like maybe you just said the last words because I, I but, but I will ask you, are there last words that you want to leave the listener with as they're maybe thinking about this as a, something that they may want to pursue for themselves? Yeah, I would say that 
you know, at the end of the day, the diagnosis is important, just as we spoke about, for relaying information between providers and understanding continuity of care. But ultimately, that doesn't define the person. You know, just because someone has autism, they're not autistic. Like that, that language has sort of left us for good reason. And so I think it's really important to, even though it informs that person's everyday sometimes, it doesn't define the whole. Yeah. It's just a part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, I was, other last question I have is if someone is interested in learning about site testing, I, we will for sure have your information on the episode description. How does somebody find a neuro, someone to do this sort of testing? So typically you can go through your insurance company and they'll have a list of providers in your area. You can go on psychologytoday.com and do a zip code search and you can filter it by uh, testing and assessment, I believe is the filter. So you can find people in your area that do it that way. And we, because we're licensed in California and Massachusetts, um, as long as you're a resident of those states, typically we have people that are doing an intake with us and they can be in Northern California. They drive down for the day for the testing and then we do the feedback via telehealth as well. So anybody really in the state of California or Massachusetts can access it through us at least. And then um, if they're having difficulty finding it in their particular area, um, usually psychiatrists are good in to, to, usually they have a sort of referral pipeline of people that they've referred out to to understand how to guide medication treatment. That actually brings up a good point. There's this, people often think that psychiatrists are, do neuropsychological mm-hmm. testing, but they don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, but yeah, I saw, I've seen some pediatricians that have done some autism testing too. So you do, you do see it in different fields. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Well, I really appreciate you being on. I refer patients to neuropsych testing quite often and I've actually learned quite a bit today about the process. And so I'm really appreciative that you've been on and you've been able to educate me a bit more about what happens and, you know, what, what patients experience when they, they, they go to a neuropsychologist. So thank well, you. thanks for having me. This was really fun. Yeah. All right. Well, take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Okay. Let me pause it. Okay. So what? This has been Mind Stories with me, Josephine McNary of Cal Psychiatry. With online psychiatry in California and 13 offices throughout Southern California and the Bay Area, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, ADHD, anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com and let us help you get back to your true self. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.